Faramon with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. And welcome to this latest episode of the RoboHub podcast. This episode will focus on automation in the field of drug discovery. Hi-Res Biosolutions are a company based in Beverly, just outside Boston. Originally founded in 2004, Hi-Res Biosolutions develop modular robotic systems that work alongside scientists to automate lab tasks, from stirring and shaking to high-throughput screening. Because the requirements of each biomedical research facility are so varied, the robotic systems are specifically tailored to meet the requirements of each lab. To accomplish this, each robotic system consists of multiple modular robots that vary in size and function. Our interview Abate spoke to Peter Harris, CEO of Hi-Res Biosolutions, about their product range, which ranges from small benchtop automators to very large multi-step high-volume robots to collaborative robots that work alongside people. Hello, and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Peter Harris. I'm the CEO of Hi-Res Biosolutions. Um, so robotics business focused on systems for biomedical research based in Beverly, Massachusetts. Excellent. Could you tell me about the, uh, the missions and the goals of your company and what you guys are producing? Sure. Um, so our mission is to improve human health through life science robotics. And we do that through delivering to biotech research companies primarily, systems that accelerate their research efforts and help them do their science better in their efforts to discover new therapies for treating all forms of diseases. And what products do you produce to tackle this problem? We have a a wide range of integrated robotic systems from small bench top-ish systems, uh, typically with a small-scale robot doing some minor activities to extraordinarily large, very complicated, multi-step systems doing very high-volume, high-throughput screening. Um, And the continuum of research areas we span is also pretty much the entire range of things that are happening in biotech, from high-throughput screening to compound management to lead optimization, cell culture, uh, almost every stage of the biomedical research process that is suitable for automation has some subset of integrated products that we will offer. Can you describe the different fields of research in biomedical um, process that you do? Sure. So, um, you know, at the highest level, uh, we could probably divide it into just a few big categories. One is small molecule research, which is what most people would think of as traditional pharmaceutical research, where the product is to make a uh, chemical compound that, you know, does affect some target in the body to 
cure or treat or mitigate a disease condition. The next big category is biologicals, which are large molecule drugs, typically significantly more complicated, grown out of often um, monoclonal antibodies. They have different processes, um, you know, but ultimately both are trying to do similar things in taking a, um, you know, a substance, one chemical, one biological, putting it into the body to get a reaction. Then the third category is genetics and genomics, where it can be some range of um, either using uh, biomedical processes to diagnose conditions, you know, assess what is happening, unpack DNA sequences to actually altering genes through things like CRISPR, CAR-T, et cetera, to get a similar effect. Um, and then there's a, a wide range of um, sort of other things from generally synthetic biology to, you know, different forms of immunotherapy, CAR-T being another example of some overlap there where, you know, historically the reason, it's not historically, the scientific reason that your body does a bad job of dealing with cancer is because it can't actually recognize the cancer cells. So in CAR-T therapy, for example, you know, we take cells out of the body, teach those T cells how to recognize the cancer and then put them back into the body to let the body's own immune system fight the cancer. So it's a broad range of activities. We also do some stuff in bioagriculture. It's very similar in some ways to the work in genetics. So do you have different robots for each of these different fields? Um, and, and do these different fields have different requirements of what they need out of a robotic system? Uh, they definitely have different requirements. Um, the robot specification, so we make a distinction between the robot and the robotic system, right? Um, the robotic system ends up being tailored for every application. It's a combination of robots and um, diagnostic devices that perform a wide range of functions from, you know, liquid handling to incubation to centrifugation to reading the results of the experiments. Um, and there are a variety of other things that happen in there too, shaking, stirring, plate management. Um, the robot itself is usually selected based on a couple different factors. Uh, one is the scale of the system. You know, are you trying to do a hundred tests or assays a week, or are you trying to do 4 million? <laughs> it depends a little bit on what your process is. So there's a element of that that goes into the robot selection that uh, the robot has to have the reach uh, and the sort of pathing capabilities to get to all the points effectively and efficiently. The next major factor is, do you want your system to be collaborative or non-collaborative? Um, Different people have preferences there. We have beliefs about this. but So we will use a wide range of robots in a system depending on what that system's needs are. But the system itself is tailor-made for the scientific purpose that our customer is trying to achieve. So a cell culture system versus a screening system versus a CAR-T development system will look very different in profile. Can you describe the look and feel of the different robots within the robotic system? Sure. So, um, you know, at some level, uh, 
all the robots that we use are fundamentally movers. They have the function of moving microplates, which is the um, standard form in which biomedical experiments are done. There are some that are done in other formats like tubes, but it's primarily microplates. The robot's job is to move the microplates through the process and the overarching software in the system keeps track of everything that's happening simultaneously to tell that robot what to do. So many of the robots that we use um, look like complex seven-axis arms that are able to reach, bend, and path around to get, you know, both um, in the XY plane and in the Z plane to a variety of positions. We have others that are simpler, um, robots that are more vertically oriented and look less like arms, have fewer axes, because some applications don't require that level of sophistication. Um, Can you describe the microplates and what Uh, the scientists are doing on them? Sure. So um, a microplate, if you imagine sort of a small rectangular plastic object that has an array of individual wells in it. Um, Those wells can be, a plate might have 96 wells, 384 wells, or 1,536 wells. And fundamentally, you know, if you back up and think, how did this science used to happen before a lot of the technological innovation we see today took place, you had a scientist in a lab with test tubes and a pipette that they held in their hand. And they moved liquids from, you know, item to item, sequencing experiments. What's happened over time is these experiments that that need to happen almost all take place in liquid. And that liquid has been miniaturized to happen in the individual wells on a microplate. So a microplate is a carrier of individual wells in which liquids can be managed um, for the purpose of experimentation. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that there is also a vertical robot that has fewer degrees of freedom. Uh, is it still functioning like an arm or is it more like a, um, a, a set of plates that just move up and down? Uh, it still functions to some degree like an arm. If you can imagine something that looks like a vertically oriented rail where the, along the rail, there's an arm with, you know, fewer degrees of freedom of movement that travels up and down the rail, but then can move plates from place to place. So for example, we build a fair number of, um, carts for automation, where the goal is to get an entire automated system delivered on a small mobile cart. And on a cart like that, if you try and take a complex, sophisticated seven-axis robotic arm and build it on there, it's A, more than you need, B, adds complexity that um, you know just uh, doesn't deliver value. So instead, you take a vertical-oriented rail-based arm robot, which can reach everything that it needs to reach, and it can move things back and forth. That kind of robot doesn't work if you need, um, you know, a very large multi-million dollar system that has to manage a wide range of devices across a larger footprint. Mm -hmm. And what footprints are we talking about? And what's the size and weight of these different uh, robot arms? 
well, the footprints for the systems will range from, you know, something that, you know, might be on a cart might be as small as, say, three by four in a footprint um, up to a large system could be, uh, you know, 10 by 20. And um, when you feet? get everything. Yeah, that's feet. Sorry. Maybe I should speak in meters, but that's feet. Okay, excellent. And um, so you mentioned that they're also carried around on carts. Are most of these uh, robotic systems uh, mobile and carried around on carts, or there are also benchtop um, versions? So, you know, a core element of how we approach automation is to deliver modularity and mobility. So if you go out and, um, you know, if you do a broad-based survey of automation that exists in laboratory environments, you'll see a fair amount of it that's pretty monolithic and static. Um, it doesn't move. It can't easily be reconfigured. And we think those... Um, that's not the right design approach to take because, you know, we're sort of at this really amazing time in biomedical research where uh, there's this giant renaissance taking place in novel methods for treating disease that are driving novel scientific approaches. So the science is changing very quickly. And then on the robotics and automation side, the technologies that are feeding into the kinds of systems you can build, how you approach them, um, and just the overall configuration are also changing very rapidly. So we design systems with both of those factors in mind so that, you know, if your science changes, it's possible through modular design to adapt that system to your changing science, as opposed to having a large system that was purpose built for something that, you know, a scientific purpose that you evolved and then your system couldn't evolve with it. Mobility is a piece of that puzzle. It's not the entire puzzle, but, um, you know, mobility allows you to, say, use um, an element of your large robotic system in the large robotic system or undock it, pull it away, wheel it down the hall and use it for something else. So mobility is a means of delivering higher um, asset utilization to customers to make pieces of their systems more flexible and able to do different things. And if you look at the systems that we deliver, it's really a range. You know, somebody who is doing, you know, straight up, uh, you know, consumer genetic testing, they don't really care that much about mobility because they're trying to run a factory just to do one thing. But if you go to biomedical research where they're trying to figure out, they, they do tons of different tests and they're exploring tons of different targets using different chemistries and they have different purpose purposes in the sequence of things, delivering that mobility and modularity is a much bigger and more important element. Can you describe some of the modular design elements that go into the robot design? Sure. So in a system, the, the most important feature to delivering modularity is the, the sort of core docking mechanism that allows a sub-element of a large system to, just by pressing a foot pedal, be removed or placed back onto a system. So, you know, in, um, in the basics of drug discovery, uh, to grossly oversimplify this, you can think you have a bunch of compounds or, or um, 
you know, you have a bunch of material that either your chemists have synthesized or you found in the Amazon rainforest that exists in a library of compounds that you own. You then have a target that you're going after in the body where you say, I want to know what is going to interact with this target. So in your sequence of steps, again, grossly simplified, you have to get your compounds to the robotic system. You then have to cook the compounds and the targets together with some reagents in one form or another. And then you have to read whether or not you got a result out of that. So you have a sequence of bring the material over, run the experiment, and then read whether you got results. Well, it could be the case that you want to use the reader on a variety of systems, or you're going to do different tests and you're going to change the reader. Maybe you want to do um, one type of reading one day, and the next day you want to do an image-based assay where you're going to actually take pictures of cells. So the modularity with the dock allows you to just pull that item out, stick a new item on, and you're instantly good to go. Whereas, you know, if you take a look at a more monolithic system, changing those things out is extraordinarily complicated. There has to be um, a lot of new setup that happens when you're switching devices. You have to re-level everything. Whereas in our docking systems, you literally, it's just plug and play. You pull it out, push it back in, and you're good to go. And can a scientist just lift that up by himself or herself? Yeah, so um, you can imagine the cart is some, uh, I'm sorry, the dock is something that sits on the floor and it engages vertically with a cart that um, sits on top of it that has wheels. So if I engage it, that cart immediately gets power, gas connections, and Ethernet. And if I disengage it, it removes those. All That process takes, you know, 20 seconds. I, if I pull it off and push the next thing on, the system will read and know that I've given it a different reader. And it then knows the location of the nests or doors of the new thing that has entered the system. And the software is ready to go and using it. So for a scientist that's using it, they really don't need to have any special skills or knowledge um, to just be able to dock and undock their devices. And how would a scientist interact with the with the robot and program different movements or other activities on there? Yeah, so um, the answer to this question has changed quite a bit in the last you know, five to 10 years with the um, development of collaborative robotics, right? Um, if you look historically at um, how automation has been deployed, not just in the biotech setting, but in uh, you know, most, um, integrated automation deployments across industries, they're really sort of mini versions of something that looks like an automotive assembly line, where you have industrial robots, they're not smart, they don't have sensing capability, they're extremely powerful and repetitive. And, you know, a robotic arm on a system like that if it costs $100,000 for a sophisticated one, the um, elements around that to make it work from the tooling to the guarding can easily be five to 10 times that in cost. So in a system like that that uses industrial robots, you have to have a substantial amount of guarding, and that really limits the scientist's ability to interact with the system in real time. So you um, systems that we built you know, five, seven years ago you know, had industrial robots and, you know, we had to 
build into the guarding a variety of ways for um, and safeguards for a scientist to be able to do small things with the system while it was operating. Frequently, what that ended up meaning was when the scientist needed to go in and interact with the system, the system stopped whatever it was doing, right? Because uh, the robot is not uh, meant to work along a scientist. Today, with collaborative robots, um, we effectively get rid of all of the guarding. So there is no guarding around the system. The scientist can reach into the system to the extent that the robot is moving. It can sense their presence. It will frequently slow down its rate of movement with um, human proximity all the way to, to the extent that you get right next to it or touch it. It will just stop. You can then adjust the things in the system, move microplates by hand if you want to. You can go and look at things. Um, it really enables people to check on things or manipulate what's happening in a human and robot together collaboration um, in a way that wasn't, impo wasn't possible with industrial robots. And how does it sense a human's presence? And are there mechanical safeguards in place in case uh, it does interact or collide with a human? that it doesn't hurt the human? Yeah, so um, it's really a couple things. We use sensors that, um, you know, have uh, basically optical sensing capability that sense if a person is moving into the range. So if, uh, if you start walking towards one of our systems that has a collaborative uh, robotic arm doing the microplate movement, it will see through those light-based sensors that you are in the neighborhood and it will adjust its movement speed or slow and or stop. The robotic arms themselves, though, um, are what really enables this because uh, all of the joints have, you know, specific designs around torque sensing and limiters so that you you can just reach out and touch it. And in the arm itself, it knows that it is receiving that force and will stop. So sensing happens at two levels. One is sensors that are built around the system to know if somebody's in the neighborhood. The second is in the arm itself, sensing, stopping, etc. And when a scientist is trying to program a, a type of motion for the arm to do, how does it enter that into the system? Yeah, so, you know, again, um, with industrial robots, the uh, process of teaching it new paths or redirecting things was, you know, reasonably complicated. You really needed somebody who was a robotic specialist to go in, you know, write code, uh, watch what it was doing, and ultimately prove out those paths. With collaborative robots, um, the development's frankly amazing. You really can just reach out, hold the arm, put it in teach mode, pull it by hand to teach it the path you want and the new location, stop, and then it knows that path. So, you know, we have some customers who are very comfortable doing robotic teaching with their own systems. Often they ask us to help support that. But in either case, in collaborative robots, the teaching process is remarkably simpler than it used to be with industrial robots. Mm -hmm. And how does the robotic system add value to the lab work process? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, really across a variety of elements. Um, and, and I think it's uh, 
maybe not well understood when most people think about automation, how automation delivers value. I run into people all the time who feel, you know, seem to think that the primary value is that robots are faster than people. But, you know, the human brain is the best computer ever made. The human eyes are 10 times the vision system of anything we have out there. And the human hand is simply the most versatile gripper out there. The robots themselves are not really faster. Um, so how we end up delivering value in terms of increased scientific output um, is through the combination of increased uptime, where robots don't stop for breaks or take a call, they simply get more things done per hour, even though they're not necessarily moving at any given moment faster than a person would. Um, they can handle massive amounts of parallel processing where, you know, if I asked you to keep track of which microplate had been in which incubator for how much time and when you need to move the other microplate out of the reader to make space for the new one that's coming, um, that multitasking function is extremely complicated for a scientist. But a robotic system can simply have tons of things happening simultaneously and keep up with them very effectively. Um, so, and in conjunction with that, I'd say the next big piece of the puzzle that's really important in the scientific area is sample uniformity, where what happens on one microplate um, is exactly the same thing that happens on the next microplate. Whereas if you contrast that with a scientist at a bench with a pipette and some beakers, it could be that, you know, they took five more seconds to let something sit in one stage before moving it to the next. That could have um, experimental impact on the scientific process, whereas with the robot, you always get the same thing and that data is captured. So you both know that it was the same and you have a record of it. So those are the big areas. There are other things, but those are the major areas that ultimately allow somebody to go and you know, increase the volume and quality of the scientific experimentation that they're doing by significant factors. And can these robotic systems perform tasks and tests while the scientist is at home sleeping? Absolutely. So uh, if you know, you want that robotic system to work in hours where your scientists are not working, um, that's no problem. You just queue up a bunch of material and set your tests and it will run unattended quite happily. Um, even beyond the at-home sleeping piece, even if during the day you have a scientist and the scientist wants to be in a meeting while the robotic system is running experiments, we build... Um, tablet and phone-based mobile applications that interface back with the core scheduling software so that you can monitor what's happening on that system without being in proximity to the system, receive alerts, know when it's done with its experiment, et cetera. So it's really designed to give the scientists as much flexibility as possible without having to sit around and you know, babysit the system while it runs. And what type of effect does the robotic system have on the behavior of people interacting with it? Does it change the working style and the mentality in the lab? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer to that is definitely yes. I mean, in, in some ways, it opens up, you know, as we reduce the cost of doing any one experiment, it 
increases the ability to test various things without necessarily knowing in advance what the likelihood of a positive outcome is. So even the design of how we go about experimenting and how we think about what kinds of tests we're going to do changes with the efficiency that a robotic system brings. Similarly, you know, we see a wide range of comfort levels with people in interacting with robots. You know, some people look at it and they view it as, um, you know, sort of space age and they don't want to get in there and mess with it. Whereas other people are very comfortable just kind of rolling their sleeves up and interacting with it. So we work pretty hard to overcome some of the human factor elements to continue to help the scientists be as productive as possible with their systems. But, you know, different people have different levels of uh, comfort and different initial reactions to working alongside a robotic system. And how do you see robotic laboratory helpers and uh, systems improving in the future to have greater application? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's a ton of really interesting stuff happening that is going to continue to change the shape of how systems, both in biomedical research and in other fields, operate. Um, you know, to some degree, the all the work that's happening around autonomous vehicles is kind of like the moon project was for technology in that sensing, managing unstructured environments, um, you know, building in decision making into how automated systems work is flowing out of a lot of the work that's happening there. So, you know, we see um, the range of applications that automation can touch expanding greatly with new technologies. You know, again, if you go back to the industrial model, if I have to build a large monolithic system that, you know, really is difficult to adjust and manipulate, I can really only do or apply automation to very high volume repetitive tasks. As my ability to change the workflow and have higher levels of intelligence in the robotic system to respond to events, changes, different sort of environmental conditions, run different tests, interact with different other elements such as, you know, uh, diagnostic instrumentation. As all those things come together, we're able to shrink down the footprint of things, make them mobile, change the task sets that they're able to focus on to continue to push into um, – you know, automating the monotonous tasks that humans have to do and let scientists be scientists and not have them be repetitive human motion machines. And how much does it currently cost to bring a drug to market? And how is that affected by using this robotic system? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I think most estimates of the current cost to bring a drug to market are something in the neighborhood of two and a half billion dollars, plus or minus. Um, and if you look at the cost profile of what goes into that two and a half billion, most of it is the cost of failure. So it's the cost of having pushed a lot of possibilities down the experiment process and having them not succeed. So there's a fair amount of um, 
you know, cost inflation that's taken place from regulatory requirements that happen in clinical testing. But, you know, our focus is upstream in the research and experimentation portion. And if you look at what robotic systems can do, you know, the more we can get scientists focused on science, the more we can increase the output, the more we can increase sample uniformity so that we're both getting higher volumes and higher quality and letting the scientists just think about you know, what targets should we go after? What scientific methods should we use? What's the best new approach to this therapy as opposed to manually having to spend their day moving liquid from beaker to beaker in a pipette? We're freeing up um, sort of dollars and value in the system to increase the yield, which, you know, it it may have the result of reducing the overall cost of discovery, or it may have the um, uh, effect of just increasing the quality and volume of the things we're discovering. But either way, you know, um, our focus is really to get scientists and robots working together to increase the efficacy of that scientific output, which ultimately has a positive effect on cost. You know, as we say, robots, um, robots don't, uh, replace jobs. They replace tasks. So our goal is to use robotic systems to replace the monotonous tasks that a scientist has to do to free them up to do the things that a robot can never do. And over the last uh, two decades or so, has the cost of drug discovery changed with the incoming of more technology into the laboratory workplace? Uh, well, to the best of my understanding, the cost of drug discovery has just continued to go up over the last couple decades. And it's, you know, the, to some degree, the answer to your question is what would the, how much would it have increased more without the impact of technology offsetting a variety of the costs that have not been as much related to the use of that technology. So I mentioned before the increased cost of clinical trials. That's a very significant driver of why drugs cost so much these days to develop. Um, a robotic system can't do anything about that. But upstream, what is sh certainly true is that you know the robotic systems have increased the scientific output significantly. Um, so there's very little doubt in my mind that in the absence of using that technology, you know, drug discovery cost inflation would be higher. And how do you predict that the process of drug discovery and research in the biomedical environment will evolve with advances in robotics and artificial intelligence? Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's hard to predict this exactly, you know, because it's a... Um, it's a super dynamic uh, set of conditions right now. But, you know, robotics, automation, and artificial intelligence in scientific discovery have a symbiotic relationship, right? Um, if, you know, artificial intelligence depends on data. So you have to have, you can't build an artificial intelligence system that, say, relies on an interface with a scientist and a manual pipette and beaker on a lab bench. You're not creating enough data. You can't have closed loop control where you're able to adjust things. So as we bring automated systems into play that are both able to increase the volume of data points um, and capture what's happening at each stage, 
artificial intelligence can layer on top of that and start to actually diagnose what's happening, increasing the quality of information that it's getting out of it, the intelligence about how it wants to design the experiment. So you can adjust what's happening with the experiment as you're experimenting rather than having sort of more of a single point of data after running a lot of experiments, come back and redesign it to iterate in step two later. So we continue to believe that there's this convergence that's going to happen where the more artificial intelligence develops for, say, you know, diagnosing what happens in, um, you know, vision or cell imaging based assays where you're taking pictures and saying what happened in that cell, the more it drives the requirement for a robotic system where we can tweak and adjust each stage of that overall assay or experiment. Thank you very much for speaking with us today. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's it from Hi-Res Biosolutions. But before we end, just a reminder that you can support us on Patreon, where we're looking for generous people who enjoy our podcast and are able to spare a few dollars a month. And as our most recent goal, we're asking you to help us attend the HRI conference in Chicago this March. The conference is focused on basic and applied human-robot interaction research, and we would love to bring you the latest from the conference proceedings in our upcoming episodes. So if you'd like to hear from the HRI conference and other cool events, and can spare a few dollars a month, please consider contributing to our Patreon campaign. You can find out more at robohub.org forward slash podcast. And as always, we'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Pharma with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.